So let's begin the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa So today, eight weeks of this three-month retreat are completed or over. So there's another four weeks, one month to go. And it's again a little bit of a transition time. Some meditators have left, are leaving, and we'll get some more, some new meditators coming for this remaining period. And so I thought for this occasion um, I'll give an inspirational talk, talking about the lives of some uh, Buddhist women, ordained and non-ordained. So what was their life like? Or how did they become nuns? Why did they take up ordination? And how have their lives been changed through practice? And talking about some female Buddhist practitioners, you know, it's, I have nothing against men, <laughs> um, but just to give kind of a balance, because very often in talks, especially from Asian uh, Buddhist male teachers, we very often come to hear about the monks, and then the monks, and some more stories of monks. And so just to counterbalance a little bit, I'll talk about women and nuns and some more nuns and some more nuns. <laughs> and also because most of the retreats that I teach uh, have many more female practitioners than men. We also only need to look around here in the meditation hall. Women outdo the men. <laughs> so it's only justified that the women, the nuns, get their part. So for me, the stories of these female practitioners are a source of great inspiration. And at the same time, it becomes clear that the problems or challenges these women, these nuns had to go through are not so much different from our problems. And so when we hear about the struggles of these nuns or women and how they overcome their problems, their struggles, it can provide us quite a, with a great deal of encouragement to continue on this path to freedom. So when we hear about the, all, the almost unsurmountable obstacles 
that some of these nuns or women had to go through, then we find inspiration so that we don't lose the courage. The Buddha's teachings are to be used as guidelines and they have to be put into practice if we want to benefit from them. They are not only a set of doctrines merely to be memorized or uh, taken as an intellectual uh, thing, but the the value of the Buddha's teaching lies in the fact that it addresses human concerns and points out ways and methods of how to deal with them, of how to overcome them. So these stories of these women show that the Buddha's teaching is a reliable source and has a transformative power to bring about liberation and freedom. And the Dhamma, which is the teaching of the Buddha, comes to life when it uh, touches our lives, when it brings about change in our lives. And it is through the Sangha, the community of those who practice the Dhamma, that the living stream of the teaching flows through the ages that it is still uh, available nowadays. (coughs) The Sangha is fourfold. It consists of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns, and also of laywomen and laymen. And that fourfold Sangha had already existed at the time of the Buddha. And actually, at the time of the Buddha, it was quite revolutionary that women were admitted as disciples and allowed to practice the Dhamma, or allowed to practice, uh, to take up a spiritual life. Because until then, women were excluded from any and religious offices or practices. And completely contrary to the prevailing belief, the Buddha stated that women had the same ability to become enlightened as men do. And then the many uh, nuns and women who became disciples of the Buddha proved that having a female body was not an obstacle to become fully liberated, was not an obstacle (coughs) to become an arahant. If one develops morality, concentration and wisdom, it doesn't matter whether one is born male or female. Enlightenment happens irrespective of superficial distinctions such as gender, caste, or race. And so 
many of these nuns and women who practiced the Buddha's teaching became models of wisdom, of generosity, of compassion, or kindness. The first woman who became a disciple, uh, a nun, in the order of the Buddha was his stepmother, Mahapachapati Gotami. She was quite an extraordinary woman, and so I'd like to share her life with you. And we have a very moving description of how she spent her last day before entering Parinibbana. So Mahapachapati Gotami was the younger sister of the Buddha's mother. As it was custom at the time, both sisters were married to King Suddhodana. And so they both became queens, but her elder sister, Mahamaya Devi, became the chief queen. And as you've heard in the Buddha's life story, she gave birth to the Buddha-to-be, but after seven days, uh, she had given birth, she passed away. And so, with her death, her younger sister, Mahapachapati Gotami, became the chief queen. And she too very soon gave birth to a boy, who was called Nanda. But she, as the chief queen, then took care of the heir of the throne, of her sister's child. And so she gave her boy into the care of a wet nurse. And so the future Buddha grew up, taken care of by his stepmother. He was married to Yasodhara. Age 29, he left the palace. And six years later, he became fully enlightened. He became the Buddha. And so then after he had become a Buddha, uh, at one stage he went back to his native town, to Kapilavatu, and as he was giving a discourse, his father, King Sudhodana, and his stepmother, Mahapachapati Gotami, both became stream enterers, reaching the first stage of enlightenment. But then five years later, King Sudadana passed away. And so, with the death of her husband, Mahapachapati Gotami, became a widow. And she, with that, she was sharing the same fate uh, as many women had from her clan. Many women of her clan had either become widows, because her husband died in an armed dispute over the rights of the use of the river Rohini. And other women in her clan were abandoned by her husbands because they become, became monks under the Buddha. So there was a great number of abandoned women, some of them widows. And 
In those days, the status of a woman depended entirely on her husband. And so, having no more husbands, either they had become monks or they had died in the battle, so there was no more meaning to their lives. And they were barely um, just fed by her, by their uh, in-laws. But it was a pretty desperate destiny of a, a widow or abandoned woman. And so Mahapachapati Gautami, we must remember she was a stream emperor, Sotapanna, she reflected that if she could enter the order of the Buddha, her life would be, have a meaning again. And sharing her idea with uh, other women, uh, they decided that they wanted to do that. And so they approached the Buddha and requested ordination. So this whole thing about Mahapachapati Gotami and the other women requesting ordination and then the response of the Buddha is a bit controversial and could make up another whole talk. So I want just to leave that aside. And finally the Buddha granted them ordination. So Mahapachapati Gotami was the first woman to become a bhikkhuni and all of her fellow women then also became bhikkhunis. And it didn't it didn't take too long before Mahapachapati Gotami and other women became fully enlightened, before they became arahants. And so proving the Buddha's statement that enlightenment is possible to both men and women. Many years later, when Mahapachapati Gotami had reached the ripe age of 120 years, in one of her meditations she realized that the lifespan was up, that it was time to shake off her body. And so therefore she went to the Buddha and told him that uh, she would enter Parinibbana. And when some disciples of Mahapachapati Gautami heard that news, they uh, broke down and started to weep. But then Mahapachapati Gotami consoled them, saying, Do not weep, my daughters. This should be a day of rejoicing for you. Long have I aspired for final Nibbana, and today my aspiration will be realized. Now is the time to beat the drum of satisfaction and joy. Do not cry. And then she gave them the following advice. O daughters, if you truly love me, abide in the Dhamma, so that the Buddha's teaching may last long. 
He has given us the permission to enter the order and I have been happy for this boon. I believe you too are happy if you, that you are happy. If that be so, practice the Dhamma in such a happy mood. And so after having comforted her disciples, then she went to the Buddha and addressed him with these words. Venerable Sir, I am commonly known as your mother, but from the point of view of the Dhamma, you are my father. Under the wing of your teaching, I have become a noble one, an Arya. I brought you up feeding with my milk. You brought me up with the milk of your Dhamma. My milk appeased your hunger for a little time. Your Dhamma stamped out the hunger of craving forever. And after that, Mahapachapati Gautami approached the Sangha and the Sangha of the monks and this included her grandson Rahula who had become a monk. It included her own son, son Nanda who also had become a monk and it included her nephew Venerable Ananda. So she paid her tribute to them with these words. Very have I grown of this body, which is like the haunt of poisonous snakes, the seat of all diseases, the house of suffering, the root of old age and death, a garbage bin filled with dirt and filth. Soon will I have this suffering ended. Allow me to have my wish fulfilled. So as the time for Parinibbana, the final passing away, approached, the Buddha asked Mahapachapati Gotami to exercise her supernormal power. Previously, the Buddha did not allow his disciples to exhibit their supernormal powers to the public. But in this instance, he requested her to do so. And this was so because uh, it was to dispel the belief by his adversaries that women could not attain the jhanas or the supernormal powers. And so then Mahapachapati Gotami worked miracles. Being one, she appeared as many. Being many, she appeared as one. She flew through the air and dived into the earth and she manifested herself in many different forms and shapes. So this display of the supernormal powers strengthened the faith of the believers and it won over the hearts of the non-believers. After that, Mahapachapati Gautami went back to her room where she entered Parinibbana, her final passing away. <coughs> the remains of her were cremated 
And after her cremation, Venerable Ananda went to pick up the ashes and bones, put them in a casket and handed them over to the Buddha. And her holding the remains of his stepmother in his hands, the Buddha said, her death is like the breaking of a big branch from a big tree. She has crossed the ocean of samsara. Since all defilements have come to an end, all suffering has ceased. While living, she was a woman of high intellect, besides being the most senior among all the bhikkhunis. She was endowed with the five supernormal powers, and she was a perfect bhikkhuni. So that's about Mahapachapati Gautami, the Buddha's stepmother and the first woman to become a bhikkhuni in the order of the Buddha. And so after the bhikkhuni order was established, a great number of women entered the Sangha and quite a great number of them entered the Sangha after their children had died. In those times, infant mortality was much bigger than it is nowadays. And so, these women fell into grief or utter desperation. But this grief and desperation were the sparks that ignited the wish not only to become free from their grief, but to put an end to all kinds of suffering that they had to go through. So for example, there was this woman called Ubiri, and she greatly mourned the death of her little daughter. Then the Buddha pointed out to her that right there at the same charnel ground were the corpses were disposed of, that right there she had parted with thousands of children to whom she had given birth in her previous existences. And because Ubiri's perfections were highly developed, this brief discourse or explanation was enough to turn Ubiri from a lamenting mother into an arahant. Because in that moment she clearly realized the vastness of samsara, this endless cycle of birth and death, and she was prepared to leave it behind. The story of Patachara is even more dramatic she not only lost her two children, but also her husband, her parents, and her brother. And this was simply too much for this young woman, and so she went crazy. She tore off all her clothes and naked, she ran through town. But then, through the great compassion of the Buddha, 
and the suitable discourse, she regained mindfulness and at the end of that uh, talk she had become Isotapana, having reached the first stage of enlightenment. In that talk, the Buddha told her that the tears she wept over the loss of her beloved ones was greater than all the water contained in the four great oceans. So that was a means to make her understand. And so then she ordained as a bikuni, and also for her it didn't take too long before she became an arahant. Years later, as she was taught as a teacher, she addressed a group of 500 grief-stricken mothers, saying, The way by, me, by which men come, we do not know, nor can we see the path by which they go. Why mourn for them who came to you? For such is the nature of living beings. So Venerable Patachara illustrated for these mothers the natural and impersonal law of birth and death. These women understood and they also took up the robes and eventually became fully liberated. Another stumbling block to liberation can be one's attachment to physical beauty and the resulting pride and conceit. Throughout the ages, women have used and are still using uh, different means to enhance their beauty and hiding the signs of advancing age. Of course, this is a futile attempt to uh, pretend that the body is not aging and uh, falling apart. However, if understanding and wisdom is applied to the aging process instead of makeups and creams and treatments with stream, steam and cucumbers and what else, <laughs> So then, if wisdom is applied, it can deepen the understanding of impermanence on all different levels. At the time of the Buddha, there were three women who were greatly infatuated with their beauty. They were Queen Kema, Ambapali and Vimala. I just want to uh, take the example of Vimala. She was one of these women greatly uh, infatuated with her beauty, very proud of her attractive body. And she was actually a prostitute, just following in the steps of her mother. And in her own words, she said, I was very proud of my beauty. Despisingly I looked down on other women 
thought nobody matches my lovely figure. I beautified and adorned this body of mine. Then I stood at my door to catch my prey in the snare I spread out. When I stripped for the men, I was the woman of their dreams. So in her case, it was Venerable Mogalana who pointed out her blindness to reality. Venerable Mogalana told her that this body was nothing but a smelly and stinking heap of bones, pus, blood, urine, and so on, saying that there was nothing in this body that could be regarded beautiful or fragrant. And with these words, Vimala realized her vanity and her attachment to her body, and she understood that everything was incessantly decaying and falling apart. So then she took up the ropes and eventually also became an arahant. So in many of the stories, this woman uh, became fully enlightened when meeting the Buddha or shortly after uh, meeting him or one of his disciples. And this was due because of their uh, perfections which they had accumulated in many of their past lives. It was because in many of the previous existences they perfected their morality, their concentration and their wisdom. So when they attained the highest fruits of the practice either instantaneously or uh, shortly after coming in contact with the Dhamma, they reaped the fruits of the wholesome deeds that they had accumulated in the past. And as such, it was not a miracle or a wonder, but simply the natural result of their arduous and diligent practice. And so, just as a little uh, comment, each moment of the practice that you are doing here adds to the accumulation of those qualities needed to become liberated. But not all who met the Buddha personally were able to become Arahants so quickly in their final lifetime. There were nuns, and of course also monks, who had to put in many, many years of intensive practice before they finally could eliminate all of their defilements. For example, uh, a nun called Chitta. She ordained when she was quite young and she spent her whole life practicing the Buddha's Dhamma. And she only reached her final goal as an old woman 
when she climbed up to Vulture's Peak. Reaching the top of the mountain, she felt quite exhausted, and so she leaned against the rock. But still being mindful, it was in that moment that she experienced the final breakthrough. Another bhikkhuni who had to struggle for many years was Venerable Siha. She also ordained uh, as a young woman, but then when she engaged into the practice, she was constantly oppressed by desire and lust. Her mind was torn by these defilements. She could not find one moment of calm or peace. And she said that for seven years she struggled and for seven years, almost day and night, she was overcome by this defilement of lust and desire. And so finally, she could no longer bear it. She took a rope, went into the forest, tied one end of the rope to a branch, and then made a loop. And it was in the moment she put the loop around her neck that her mind was not only freed from her lust and desire, but from all her defiling uh, mental states. So it was then and there she became an arahant. So, having struggled for seven years, almost day and night, being oppressed by lust and desire, it's quite something and um, many of you have been here for two months also uh, having challenging moments but I don't think it's day and night that you have been oppressed by the violent so the stories and examples that I've mentioned so far have all dealt with women and nuns who lived at the time of the Buddha. And so now I'm going to relate two stories of women of our days. One is the story of Dodamavati, a Nepalese Theravada nun living in Kathmandu. And the second one is Deepama, a laywoman who was born in Bengal, what is now Bangladesh, and who lived for many years in Yangon, Burma. Later she moved to Calcutta in India, where she passed away in 1989, almost 20 years ago. So first let's go to Dota Mavati. What I especially admire in Dota Mavati's life story is the determination she had to do what she wanted to do. Todamavati is now 73 years old. She's the abbess of two nunneries, <coughs> one in Kathmandu and one in Lumbini, Nepal. And she is using all her time and energy 
to spread the Dhamma in Nepal. So Dodamawati was born into a wealthy family in Patan, which is near to Kathmandu. And already at an early age, she developed a great interest in the Buddha's teaching. And so, with a Nepalese Theravada monk who had studied in Burma, she started to learn Pali. And it was when she was about 12 years old that she came to know that in Burma there were many nuns, many nunneries where the nuns could uh, study the Buddha's teaching. And so when she heard that, immediately she knew that this was what she wanted to do. And so she approached her parents to give her permission to go to Burma and study. But her parents didn't give her permission to do so. But her desire to go there and do that was so strong that she uh, persuaded one of her friends to come with her. And so they simply ran away from home. So two 12, 13-year-old girls running away from home. That was in the 40s. And at that time, there were some roads, some cars in the Kathmandu Valley, but not beyond that. And so they had quite an adventurous trip down into the plains, and they made it to Kusinara, which is the place where the Buddha uh, passed away. And in Kusinara, there was a Burmese Vihara, a Burmese monastery, and so they went there. And there was a monk, Bhante Tamahuta, who was there, and they told him that they wanted to go to Burma, and that he should help them to get to Burma. And Bhante Tamahuta was a very kind-hearted monk, and he said, that he would help them. But they had no passports, <laughs> and so the first thing was to organize passports. But of course, this was not an easy thing to do. And as time went on, uh, they learned Pali, they even started to learn Burmese with this Burmese monk. And it was there that they ordained as nuns, because they thought maybe it would be a bit easier to get passports for them and to get them to Burma. But still, many months passed and it didn't seem to be possible. And it was at that time that Totamawati's friend's mother arrived with a search troop, also some servants of Totamawati's family. And uh, her friend had no choice. She had to go back with her mother. But Dodamawati refused uh, to go back. So they left. Dodamawati was left there alone. And again she went to Panditamahuda and said he should fill the promise to help her to get to Burma. And so uh, Panditamahuda realized that he had no choice but try everything. And so he decided to go to Calcutta 
thinking might get might be easier to get a passport for her there. And so they traveled to Calcutta and again there was a Burmese Vihara there. They stayed there. But still it proved to be impossible to get the passport for her. And so to travel to Burma by ship or by plane was impossible. So the only possible way was to use the land route. So then they traveled to Assam, which was the border to Burma. And there they met a group of Burmese elephant traders who just had brought some elephants, sold them, and were going back to Burma. There were no roads, no car going into Burma, but it was a strenuous six days walks through the jungle. But the elephant traders well were familiar with that path, and so they uh, supported and helped the two of them. And so then they came to Michina, a town in northern Burma, the first bigger town. And actually in Michina there was a group, quite a, gr- a large group of Nepalese Gorkha people living there. And Todamavati was happy to meet some Nepalese people. They were happy to meet her. But then some of these people were suspicious because like there was a monk traveling with this young girl, even she was a nun. So they informed the police and she was arrested, put into prison. And when the headquarters in Yangon heard about that case, they ordered Dodamawati to be sent to Yangon. And so this happened and Bandidama Buddha was left alone up there. But luckily, he knew some supporters in Yangon, and he could send a telex informing them that this Nepalese girl, nun, had been sent to Yangon. And luckily, this supporter had some connections to the police headquarters in Yangon, and he managed to get Dodamawati out of prison. And he even managed to get a passport for her. And so with that, things were settled. And then he took her to a famous nunnery in Molamien, which is southeast of Yangon. And so there, in this nunnery, she studied the Pali scriptures with a big number of Burmese nuns. And she went through all the different exams and finally passed the Dhammacharya exam. This is like a BA of Buddhist philosophy. And it's this level uh, that Burmese nuns and monks need in order to teach in the public. And so in the meantime then her family had found out where she was and um, so when she finally finished her studies 
they requested her to return to Nepal. And so she did. And then she started to establish a nunnery in Kathmandu, the Dharmakirti nunnery. And she establishing this nunnery, then many women entered the nunnery, became nuns. And so since then, it has become quite a lively nunnery with many nuns. And some years ago, she opened the second nunnery in Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha. So she was not only teaching the nuns and establishing this nunnery, but she also reached out to the lay people, teaching lay people. And she and her nuns even undertook, or they didn't, uh, they also went out to smaller villages uh, to teach the Dhamma. So they were quite active and energetic. Todamawati never met with easy conditions, but due to her strong perseverance and strong determination, uh, coupled with a strong effort, she created this lively community of Theravadan nuns and uh, lay followers in Nepal. I have met Dodamawati a couple of times uh, on uh, Sakyadita conferences and one time I went to visit her in her nunnery in Kathmandu. Then the second person I want to talk about is Deepa Ma. Deepa Ma's life, her story, is quite an extraordinary one. And not less extraordinary is the fact how her life was transformed once she was able uh, to practice the Dhamma uh, wholeheartedly. So Deepa Ma was born in 1911 in a small village in East Bengal, which was on the border uh, to Burma. She was born into a Buddhist family. And although at that time girls were not sent to schools, her desire for knowledge was so great that her parents could not help her back from going to school. But then, in accordance with the cultural norms, Deepa Ma was to be married before the onset of menstruation. And so, age 12, she was married to this man from the neighboring village, who was 25. And after the wedding, she had to go and live with her in-laws, also as uh, the tradition required. And only after one week after her wedding, 
her husband went back to Yangon, where he was working as an engineer. So Deepa Ma, a 12-year-old girl, was left with her quite demanding in-laws. And although she did not live too far away from her parents, only occasional visits to her parents were permitted. And then, after two years, when she was 14, she was put on a ship headed for Yangon so that she could live with her husband. And so when they were living together, Deepa Ma and her husband actually fell in love with each other. We must remember it was an arranged marriage and it was not always the case that then husband and wife fell in love with each other, but they did. So they were happy, but then her, their happy uh, marriage was challenged with one very big problem. And this was the fact that Deepa Ma could not conceive a child. And so for a woman in that culture, not being able to bear children was a very serious and big problem. And so then after a few years, her parents-in-law arranged a new marriage for their son. But her husband, truly loving Deepa Ma, refused what his parents wanted to do. And so then, only a few years later, Deepa Ma came to know that her mother died. And this was a great shock for her. And the pain of that loss stayed with her for many, many years. And at the same time, Deepa Ma developed typhoid fever, and so she had to stay in hospital for many months. When Deepa Ma's mother had died, she left an 18-month-old little boy. And Deepa Ma's father was unable to care for that little baby, and so Deepa Ma's father offered that little boy to Deepa Ma and her husband to care for, to bring up. So then that little boy was sent to Yangon. Deepa Ma and her husband were uh, actively involved in the Buddhist community where they lived. They also kept the five precepts and they did daily chanting. And besides that, they sponsored two community feasts every year. And they also offered alms food to the monks. And besides that, they also offered the schooling of children of very poor family who could otherwise not afford it. That. And they even uh, opened their house as a shelter for those Uh, who had no homes.
from the day when Deepa Ma had arrived in Yangon, she had this very strong wish to meditate. And, but her husband uh, did not give her permission, saying that she could do that when all her obligations as a mother and housewife had been fulfilled. And so then Deepa Ma found some way to at least study the Buddhist textures, texts because there was such a big hunger uh, for that. Then, after the Second World War had finished, the little boy, who Deepa Ma was actually her little brother, um, whom they uh, took care of, so he had grown up, become an adult, adult, and he decided to return to his native place. And so again, Deepa Ma thought that this now would be a good time to start practicing meditation. But still, something else happened. And what then happened was actually almost a miracle because after almost 20 years of trying to conceive a child, Deepa Ma finally got pregnant. So that was a happy turn of events. And she gave birth to a baby girl. So the parents were both very, very happy. But three months after the girl had been born, it died. And so again, that was a great loss and uh, grief. Uh, Deepama uh, was grieving very much. And so, with that grief, Deepama also started to develop a heart disease. But after four years, she got pregnant again. And again, this time, it was a girl and it survived. And so they named the girl Deepa. And as she was the mother of Deepa, she was uh, called Deepa Ma, the mother of Deepa. That's how uh, she got her name. And again, a few years later, Deepa Ma got pregnant a third time. And this time it was the all-important baby boy, because to have a boy uh, was almost imperial, important. But the, the shock was too great when this boy died at birth. So Deepa Ma fell into great despair and grief. And again, she asked her, her husband for permission to go and meditate. But again, her husband said she could do it later. And so then she started to develop hypertension. And because of that, she had to stay in bed for several years. So her husband uh, was working during the day and 
the remaining time he was taking care of Deepa Ma and also taking care of the little daughter, Deepa. One night, it was in 1957, Deepa Ma's husband came back home from work and he said that he didn't feel very well. And it was within a few hours that her husband died of a heart attack. So within 10 years, Deepa Ma had lost two children, her husband and her health. She was now a widow with a seven-year-old daughter whom she had to bring up on her own. And during that time, she was crying a lot. Her health further declined and she was completely exhausted, greatly uh, in despair and actually facing death. And she realized that unless she did something about her state of mind, she would die of a broken heart. And so then, one day she asked herself, what can I take with me when I die? She looked around at her dowry, at her silk saris, and even at her daughter. And so, then she made up her mind. She prepared to leave and go to a meditation center in Yangon. So she went over to her neighbor and gave her all possessions, said, you know, the house, everything is yours. Use it to care for my daughter and look after her. She thought she would never return because she thought if she was going to die, then better go dying while meditating in the center. But then things developed a little bit different from what she had imagined. Because on the second day as she was walking to the interview, she was bitten by a dog. And because the fear of rabies was there, then she had to go to get injections every day. And she had to leave the meditation center to get these injections. And so she missed the midday meal and not eating uh, she got weaker and weaker until finally the Sayadol said that it would be better she would go home and regain her strength so she returned home and because her little daughter had been quite upset of her mother leaving so suddenly she stayed at home for several years, but having learned the basics of meditation, whenever she had the opportunity and time, she practiced according to the instructions she had been given in the center. So, sometime later, she came to know that a family friend and a Buddhist teacher called 
Anagarika Munindra stayed at the Mahasi Meditation Center in Yangon. So Deepama invited him to her home and related him her meditation experiences. And Anagarika Munindra encouraged her to practice. And by that time, Deepama's sister, Hema, had also moved to Yangon with her whole family. And so now Deepama's daughter, Deepa, had some uh, more family members there uh, in Yangon. And so then it was having that opportunity that Deepama again uh, decided to go to the meditation center to practice. And so this second retreat proved to be life-changing. Although for the first two days, what she experienced was nothing but sleepiness. Since the death of her husband, she was an insomniac. But then, when she went to the meditation center, for the first two days, uh, all the time she was falling asleep. (laughs) But then, on the third day, she uh, overcame her sleepiness, deepened concentration and so within a few days she went through the classical stages of insight knowledge and on the sixth day of her stay there she reached the first first stage of enlightenment she became a sotapanna and so finally After three decades of searching for freedom, at the age of 53, after only six days of intensive practice, Deepama got a first glimpse of Nirvana. After that experience, her blood pressure returned to normal and also her heart palpitations diminished. She stayed two more months in the center and then returned home. And then in the following year, she made frequent trips to the meditation center. And then after her next intensive retreat, she experienced another breakthrough after only five days of intensive practice. So then she reached the second stage of enlightenment. And again, with that experience, her mental and physical uh, conditions were transformed again. Her friends and her family were really astonished. Within quite a short time, Deepama had changed from a sickly, dependent and grief-stricken woman into a healthy, independent and radiant being. And so, inspired by her uh, example, her friends and family members also uh, came with her to the meditation center to practice. 
and for about a year they frequently went to the meditation center to practice but they also would practice at home so for example when the family was having a meal together they would eat their meal in silence being mindful uh, of their eating and so as a result of this practice in the center and at home all the six children like Deepama's daughter and the children of her sister they also reached at least the first stage of enlightenment in the mid 60s Mahasi Sayadaw wanted to train Anagarika Monindra in the supernormal powers before he would return back to India but Anagarika Monindra was very busy teaching his students and so he chose Deepama, her sister Hema and three of the daughters to train them in the supernormal powers and Deepama was the most adept of them so for example for her interview with Anagarika Monindra she would appear in the room by coming through the wall or by simply materializing out of the air one time she appeared out of the ground as if she was emerging from water her clothes all dripping with water then the following year Anagarika Monindra left for India and so then Deepama uh, became a teacher people started to seek her advice and one of her first students was her friend Malati who had also become a widow having six uh, small children to raise and so Deepama gave her advice of how to meditate while taking care of her children and one particular advice she gave her friend was who was who had still a baby whom she was breastfeeding and so Deepama told her whenever she was breastfeeding her baby to be fully present with the sucking sensations of her baby at her breast and as that amounted to many hours every day and together with all the other practice that friend did so her friend also uh, became a sotapanna only by meditating at home never having gone to a meditation center but then one year later in 1967 the Burmese government ordered all foreigners to leave the country and so Deepama with her daughter moved to Calcutta there Deepa could continue her education they lived in a very small apartment they had no income but very soon the news spread that an accomplished meditation master had come and so people started to turn up 
on the doorstep. And Deepa Ma uh, taught everybody who was seeking advice. And her teaching can be summarized with this quote. The whole path of mindfulness is this. Whatever you are doing, be aware of it. Then, in the late 60s and early 70s, Joseph Goldstein and other Western seekers uh, met her and they were uh, staying with her or seeking uh, advice from her and they also invited her twice to the uh, USA during the annual three-month retreat. Her second trip to the United States was in 84, but after that her health uh, deteriorated and so she did no longer travel. But still, she still continued to teach from her small apartment in Calcutta. Then, in 1989, she died unexpectedly. At the time, she was 78 years old. That day, Deepa Ma was not feeling very well, and Deepa, her daughter, asked if she could call a doctor. Her mother was a bit hesitating to agree, but finally she did. But then Deepa couldn't find a doctor. A neighbor came over and he started to massage Deepa Ma's arm. And that neighbor later recalled, Then Deepa Ma asked me to touch her head. So I touched her head and I started chanting the sutras she taught me. When she heard me chanting, she bowed with her hands in prayer. She bowed towards the Buddha and did not get up. So we both lifted her off the floor and frowned that her breathing had stopped. She had died in her bow to the Buddha. Her face was very calm and at peace. What a beautiful way to die. <laughs> so I have never met Deepama personally, but what I have come to know about her life and her teaching gives me great inspiration. And there is a beautiful book about her life and her teaching written by Amy Schmidt. It's called Knee Deep in Grace truly inspiring book. So the nuns and the women that I mentioned in this talk are only a few of this great number of female Buddhist practitioners who stand out like a beacon. I would have liked to talk about more of these uh, outstanding women but the time of this talk is limited, and so I had to, I had this difficult choice to choose just a few of them. If you are 
interested to know a little bit more, there are the, the Terigatas, verses of the nuns who lived at the time of the Buddha. Also very inspiring uh, verses. In their verses, these nuns describe either the oppressing conditions under which they had to live or describing the struggles for freedom or how they actually made the breakthrough. So the lives of these women from the past and the present, they demonstrate that the spiritual ideals put forth in the teachings are not merely intellectual constructs, but these ideals can actually be achieved by human beings like you and me. We see that they too began as ordinary human beings having the same difficulties, the same hindrances, and the same doubts. But through their diligent practice, they could overcome all their difficulties, obstacles and hindrances, and they could rise to a truly noble state. So let's conclude this talk here. May all of you be able to rise to a truly noble state and find true peace and lasting happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.